Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of A Tramp Abroad by Mark Twain. Volume 14, Chapter 37. Our imposing column starts upward. After I'd finished my readings, I was no longer myself. I was tranced, uplifted, intoxicated by the most incredible perils and adventures I'd been following my authors through and the triumphs I had been sharing with them. I sat silent some time and then turned to Harris and said, My mind is made up. Something in my tone struck him, and when he glanced at my eye and read what was written there, his face paled perceptibly. He hesitated a moment and then said, Speak. I answered with perfect calmness. I will ascend the Riffelberg. If I had shot my poor friend, he could not have fallen from his chair more suddenly. If I had been his father, he could not have pleaded harder to get me to give up my purpose. But I turned a deaf ear to all he said. When he perceived at last that nothing could alter my determination, he ceased to urge, and for a while the deep silence was broken only by his sobs. I sat in marble resolution with my eyes fixed upon vacancy for in spirit I was already wrestling with the perils of the mountain, and my friend sat gazing at me in adoring admiration through his tears. At last he threw himself upon me in a loving embrace and exclaimed in broken tones, Your Harris will never desert you. We will die together. I cheered the noble fellow with praises, and soon his fears were forgotten, and he was eager for the adventure. He wanted to summon the guys at once and leave at two in the morning, as he supposed the custom was, but I explained that nobody was looking at that hour and that the start in the dark was not usually made from the village, but from the first night's resting place on the mountainside. I said that we could leave the village at 3 or 4 p.m. on the morrow. Meantime, he could notify the guys and also let the public know of the attempt which we proposed to make. I went to bed but did not sleep. No man can sleep when he is about to undertake one of these alpine exploits. I tossed feverishly all night long and was glad enough when I heard the clock strike half-past eleven and knew it was time to get up for dinner. I rose, jaded and rusty, and went to the noon meal, where I found myself the center of interest and curiosity, for the news was already abroad. It is not easy to eat calmly when you are a lion, but it is very pleasant nevertheless. As usual at Zermatt, when a great ascent is about to be undertaken, everybody, native and foreign, laid aside his own projects and took up a good position to observe the start. The expedition consisted of 198 people, as follows. Myself, one veterinary surgeon, Mr. Harris, one butler, 17 guides, 12 waiters, four surgeons, one footman, one geologist, one barber, one botanist, one head cook, three chaplains, nine assistants, two draftsmen, four pastry cooks, 15 barkeepers, one confectionery artist, one Latinist, transportation, etc., 27 porters, three coarse washers and ironers, 44 mules, 44 muleteers, seven cows, two milkers. Total, 154 men, 51 animals, grand total, 205. Rations, etc. Apparatus, 16 cases of ham, 25 spring mattresses, two barrels of flour, 22 barrels of whiskey, bedding for same, one barrel sugar, two mosquito nets, one keg of lemons, 29 tents, 2,000 cigars, scientific instruments, one barrel of pies, 97 ice axes, one ton pemmican, five cases dynamite, 143 pairs of crutches, seven cans of nitroglycerin, two barrels arnica, 22 40-foot ladders, one bale of lint, 
two miles of rope, 27 kegs of paragoric, and 154 umbrellas. It was full four o'clock in the afternoon before my cavalcade was entirely ready. At that hour, it began to move, in point of numbers and spectacular effect. It was the most imposing expedition that had ever marched from Zermatt. I commanded the chief guide to arrange the men and animals in single file, twelve feet apart, and lash them all together on a strong rope. He objected that the first two miles was dead level, with plenty of room, and that the rope was never used except in very dangerous places. But I would not listen to that. My reading had taught me that many serious accidents had happened in the Alps simply from not having the people tied up soon enough. I was not going to add another one to the list. The guide then obeyed my orders. When the procession stood at ease, roped together, and ready to move, I never saw a finer sight. It was 3,122 feet long, over half a mile. Every man and me was on foot and had his green veil and his blue goggles and his white rag around his hat and his coil of rope over one shoulder and under the other and his ice axe on his belt and carried his alpenstock in his left hand, his umbrella closed in his right, and his crutches slung at his back. The burdens of the pack mules and the horns of the cows were decked with Edelweiss and Alpine rows. I and my agent were the only persons mounted. We were in the post of danger in the extreme rear, and tied securely to five guides apiece. Our armor-bearers carried our ice axes and alpenstocks and other implements for us. We were mounted upon very small donkeys, as a measure of safety. In time of peril, we could straighten our legs and stand up and let the donkey walk from under us. Still, I cannot recommend this sort of animal, at least for excursions of mere pleasure, because his ears interrupt the view. I and my agent possessed the regulation mountaineering costumes, but concluded to leave them behind. Out of respect for the great numbers of tourists of both sexes who would be assembled in front of the hotels to see us pass, and also out of respect for the many tourists whom we expected to encounter on our expedition, we decided to make the ascent in evening dress. We wandered the caravan at the cold stream which rushes down a trough near the end of the village, and soon afterwards left the haunts of civilization behind us. About half-past five o'clock, we arrived at a bridge which spans the visp, and after throwing over a detachment to see if it was safe, the caravan crossed without accident. The way now led by a gentle ascent, carpeted with fresh green grass, to the church at Winkelmotten. Without stopping to examine this edifice, I executed a flank movement to the right and crossed the bridge over the Fidelenbach after first testing its strength. Here I deployed to the right again and presently entered an inviting stretch of meadowland which was unoccupied, save by a couple of deserted huts, toward the furthest extremity. These meadows offered an excellent camping place. We pitched our tents, supped, established a proper grade, recorded the events of the day, and then went to bed. We arose at two in the morning and dressed by candlelight. It was a dismal and chilly business. A few stars were shining, but the general heavens were overcast, and the great shaft of the Matterhorn was draped in a cable pile of clouds. The chief guide advised a delay. He said he feared it was going to rain. We waited until nine o'clock and then got away in tolerably clear weather. Our course led up some terrific steeps, densely wooded with larches and cedars, and traversed by paths which the rains had guttered and which were obstructed by loose stones. To add to the danger and inconvenience, we were constantly meeting returning tourists on foot and horseback, and as constantly being crowded and battered by ascending tourists who were in a hurry and wanted to get by. Our troubles thickened. About the middle of the afternoon, the seventeen guides called a halt and held a consultation. After consulting an hour, they said their first suspicion remained intact, that is to say, they believed they were lost. I asked if they did not know it. No, they said, they couldn't absolutely know whether they were lost or not, because none of them had ever been in that part of the country before. They had a strong instinct that they were lost, but they had no proof, except that they did not know where they were. 
They had met no tourists for some time, and they considered that a suspicious sign. Plainly, we were in an ugly fix. The guides were naturally unwilling to go alone and seek a way out of the difficulty. So we all went together. For better security, we moved slowly and cautiously, for the forest was very dense. We did not move up the mountain, but around it, hoping to strike across the old trail. Toward nightfall, when we were about tired out, we came up against a rock as big as a cottage. This barrier took all the remaining spirit out of the men, and a panic of fear and despair ensued. They moaned and wept and said they would never see their homes and their dear ones again. Then they began to upbraid me for bringing them upon this fatal expedition. Some even muttered threats against me. Clearly it was no time to show weakness. So I made a speech in which I said that other Alp climbers had been in as perilous a position as this, and yet by courage and perseverance had escaped. I promised to stand by them. I promised to rescue them. I closed by saying we had plenty of provisions to maintain us for quite a siege. And did they suppose Zermatt would allow a half a mile of men and mules to mysteriously disappear during any considerable time, run above their noses, and make no inquiries? No, Zermatt would send out search expeditions, and we would be saved. This speech had great effect. The men pitched the tents with some little show of cheerfulness, and we were smugly under cover when the night shut down. I now reaped the reward of my wisdom in providing one article which is not mentioned in any book of Alpine adventure, but this. I refer to the paragoric. If it was not for that beneficent drug, not one of those men would have slept a moment during that fearful night. If not for that gentle persuader, they would have tossed, unsue the night through. However, for me it was whiskey. Yes, they would have risen in the morning unfit for their heavy task. As it was, everyone slept, but my agent and me. Only we and the barkeeps. I would not have permitted myself to sleep at such a time. I considered myself responsible for all those lives. I meant to be on hand and ready in case of avalanches up there, but I did not know it then. We watched the weather all through that awful night and kept an eye on the barometer to be prepared for the least change. There was not the slightest change recorded on the instrument during the whole time. Words cannot describe the comfort that that friendly, hopeful, steadfast thing was to me in that season of trouble. It was a defective barometer and had no hand but the stationary brass pointer, but I did not know that until afterwards. If I should be in such a situation again, I should not wish for any barometer but that one. All hands rose at two in the morning and took breakfast, and as soon as it was light, we roped ourselves together and went at that rock. For some time, we tried the hook rope and other means of scaling it, but without success, that is, without perfect success. The hook caught once, and Harris started up it hand over hand, but the hold broke, and if there had not happened to be a chaplain sitting underneath at the time, Harris would certainly have been crippled. As it was, it was the chaplain. He took to his crutches, and I ordered the hook rope to be laid aside. It was too dangerous an implement where so many people were standing around. We were puzzled for a while, when somebody thought of the ladders. One of these was leaned against the rock, and the men went up it tied together in couples. Another ladder was set up for use in descending. At the end of half an hour, everybody was over, and that rock was conquered. We gave our first grand shout of triumph, but that joy was short-lived, for somebody asked how we were going to get the animals over. This was a serious difficulty. In fact, it was an impossibility. The courage of the men began to waver immediately. Once more, we were threatened with a panic. When the danger was most imminent, we were saved in a mysterious way. A mule, which had attracted attention from the beginning by his disposition to experiment, tried to eat a five-pound can of nitroglycerin. This happened right alongside the rock. The explosion threw us all to the ground and covered us with dirt and debris. It frightened us extremely, too, for the crash it made was deafening, and the violence of the shock made the ground tremble. However, we were grateful, for the rock was gone. Its place was occupied now by a new cellar, about thirty feet across and fifteen feet deep. The explosion was heard as far as Zermatt, 
and an hour and a half afterwards, many citizens of that town were knocked down and quite seriously injured by descending portions of mule meat frozen solid. This shows better than any estimate in figures how high the experimenter went. We had nothing to do now but bridge the cellar and proceed on our way. With a cheer, the men went to work. I attended to the engineering myself. I appointed a strong detail to cut down trees with ice axes and trim them for piers to support the bridge. This was a slow business, for ice axes are not good for chopping wood. I caused my piers to be firmly set up in ranks in the cellar, and upon them I laid six of my forty-foot ladders side by side, and laid six more on top of them. Upon this bridge I caused a bed of boughs to be spread, and on top of the boughs a bed of earth six inches deep. I stretched ropes upon either side to serve as railings, then my bridge was complete. A train of elephants could have crossed in safety and comfort. By nightfall, the caravan was on the other side, and the ladders were taken up. Next morning, we went on in good spirits for a while, though our way was slow and difficult, by reason of the steep and rocky nature of the ground and the thickness of the forest. But at last, a dull despondency crept into the men's faces, and it was apparent that not only they, but even the guides were now convinced that we were lost. The fact that we still met no tourists was a circumstance that was but too significant. Another thing seemed to suggest that we were not only lost, but very badly lost, for there must surely be some search parties on the road before this time. Yet we had not seen any sign of them. Demoralization was spreading. Something had to be done and done quickly. Fortunately, I am not unfertile in expedients. I contrived one now which commended itself to all, for it promised well. I took three-quarters of a mile of rope and fastened one end of it around the waist of a guide and then told him to go find the road while the caravan waited. I instructed him to guide himself back by the rope in case of failure. In case of success, he was to give the rope a series of violent jerks, whereupon the expedition would go to him at once. He departed, and in two minutes had disappeared among the trees. I paid out the rope myself while everyone watched the crawling thing with eager eyes. The rope crept away quite slowly at times, at other times with briskness. Twice or thrice we seemed to get the signal, and a shout was just ready to break from the men's lips when they perceived it was a false alarm. But at last, when over a half a mile of rope had slid away, it stopped gliding and stood absolutely still. One minute, Two minutes. Three. We held our breaths and watched. Was the guide resting? Was he scanning the country from some high point? Was he inquiring of a chance mountaineer? Had he fainted from an excess of fatigue and anxiety? This thought gave us a shock. I was in the very first act of detailing an expedition to Sukharim, when the cord was assailed with a series of such frantic jerks that I could hardly keep hold of it. The huzzah that went up then was good to hear. Saved! We are saved! The words rang out, and all up and down the rank of the caravan. We rose up and started at once. We found the route to be good enough for a while, but it began to grow difficult by and by, and this feature steadily increased. When we judged we had gone half a mile, we expected to see the guide at any time. But no, he was not visible anywhere, neither was he waiting, for the rope was still moving. Consequently, he was doing the same. This argued that he had not found the road yet, but was marching to it with some peasant. There was nothing for us to do but plod along, and this we did. At the end of three hours, we were still plodding. This was not only mysterious, but exasperating and very fatiguing, too, for we had tried hard along at first to catch up with the guide, but had only fagged ourselves in vain, for although he was traveling slowly, he was yet able to go faster than the hampered caravan over such ground. At three in the afternoon we were nearly dead from exhaustion, and still the rope was slowly gliding out. The murmurs against the guide had been growing steadily, and at last they were become savage and loud. A mutiny ensued. The men refused to proceed. 
They declared that we had been traveling over and over the same ground all day in a kind of circle. They demanded that our end of the rope be made fast to a tree so as to halt the guide until we could overtake him and kill him. This was not an unreasonable requirement, so I gave the order. As soon as the rope was tied, the expedition moved forward with that alacrity which the thirst for vengeance usually inspires. But after a tiresome march of almost half a mile, we came to a hill covered thick with crumbly rubbish of stones, and so steep that no man of any of us was now in a condition to climb it. Every attempt failed, and ended in crippling somebody. Within twenty minutes I had five men on crutches. Whenever a climber tried to assist himself by the rope, it yielded and let him tumble backwards. The frequency of this result suggested an idea to me. I ordered the caravan to bout face and form in marching order. I then made the tow rope fast to the rear mule and gave the command. Mark time! By the right flank! Forward, march! The procession began to move to the impressive strains of a battle chant, and I said to myself, Now if the rope don't break, I judge this will fetch that guide into the camp. I watched the rope gliding down the hill, and presently, when I was all fixed for triumph, I was confronted with bitter disappointment. There was no guide tied to the rope. It was only a very indignant old black ram. The fury of the baffled expedition exceeded all bounds. They even wanted to wreak their unreasoning vengeance on this innocent dumb brute. But I stood between them and their prey, menaced by a bristling wall of ice axes and alpenstocks, and proclaimed there was but one road to this murder, and it was directly over my corpse. Even as I spoke, I saw that my doom was sealed. Except miracles supervened to divert these madmen from their fell purpose. I see the sickening wall of weapons now. I see their advancing hosts as I saw it then. I see the hate in those cruel eyes. I remember how I drooped my head upon my breast. I feel again the sudden earthquake shock in my rear, administered by the very ram I was sacrificing myself to save. I hear once more the typhoon of laughter that bursts from the assaulting column as I clove it from van to rear like a sepoy shot from a Rodman gun. I was saved, yes, I was saved, and by the merciful instinct of ingratitude which nature had planted in the breast of that treacherous beast, the grace which eloquence had failed to work in those men's hearts had been wrought by a laugh, and the ram was set free and my life was spared. We lived to find out that the guide had deserted us as soon as he had placed a half mile between himself and us. To avert suspicion, he had judged it best that the lion should continue to move. So he caught that ram, and at the time that he was sitting on it, making the rope fast to us, we were imagined he was lying in a swoon, overcome by fatigue and distress. When he allowed the ram to get up, it fell to plunging around, trying to rid itself of the rope, and this was a signal which we had risen up with in glad shouts to obey. We had followed this ram around and round in a circle all day, a thing which was proven by the discovery that we had watered the expedition seven times at one and the same spring in seven hours. As expert a woodsman as I am, I had somehow failed to notice this until my attention was called to it by a hog. This hog was always wallowing there, and as he was the only hog we saw, his frequent repetition, together with his unvarying similarity to himself, finally caused me to reflect that, well, he must be the same hog. And this led me to the deduction that this must be the same spring also, which indeed it was. I made a note of this curious thing, as showing in a striking manner the relative difference between glacial action and the action of the hog. It is now a well-established fact that glaciers move. I consider that my observations go to show with equal conclusiveness that a hog in a spring does not move. I shall be glad to receive the opinions of other observers upon this point. To return, for an explanatory moment to that guide, and then I shall be done with him. After leaving the ram tied to the rope, 
He had wandered at large a while and then happened to run across a cow. Judging that a cow would naturally know more than a guide, he took her by the tail, and the result justified his judgment. She nibbled her leisurely way downhill till it was near milking time. Then she struck for home and towed him into Zermatt. Chapter 38 I Conquer the Gorner Grot We went into camp on that wild spot to which the ram had brought us. The men were greatly fatigued. Their conviction that we were lost was forgotten in the cheer of a good supper, and before reaction had a chance to set in, I loaded them up with paregoric and put them to bed. Next morning, I was considering in my mind our desperate situation and trying to come up with a remedy, when Harris came to me with a Bedecker map, which showed conclusively that the mountain we were on was still in Switzerland. Yes, every part of it was in Switzerland. So we were not lost, after all. This was an immense relief. It lifted the weight of two such mountains from my breast. I immediately had the news disseminated and the map exhibited. The effect was wonderful. As soon as the men saw with their own eyes that they knew where they were, and that it was only the summit that was lost and not themselves, they cheered up instantly and said with one accord, Let the summit take care of itself. Our distresses being at an end, I now determined to rest the man in camp, and give the scientific department of the expedition a chance. First, I made a barometric observation to get our altitude, but I could not perceive that there was any result. I knew by my scientific reading that either thermometers or barometers ought to be boiled to make them accurate. I did not know which it was, so I boiled them both. There was still no result, so I examined these instruments and discovered that they possessed radical blemishes. The barometer had no hand but the brass pointer, and the ball of the thermometer was stuffed with tin foil. I might have boiled those things to rags and never found out anything. I hunted up another barometer. It was new and perfect, and I boiled it for half an hour in a pot of bean soup, which the cooks were making. The result was unexpected. The instrument was not affecting at all, but there was such a strong barometer taste to the soup that the head cook who was a most conscientious person, changed its name in the bill of fare. The dish was so greatly liked by all that I ordered the cook to have barometer soup every day. It was believed that the barometer might eventually be injured, but I did not care for that. I had demonstrated to my satisfaction and could not tell how high a mountain was. Therefore, I had no real use for it. Changes in the weather I could take care of without it. I did not wish to know when the weather was going to be good. What I wanted to know was when it was going to be bad, and this I could find out from Harris's corns. Harris had had his corns tested and regulated at the government observatory in Heidelberg, and one could depend upon them with confidence. So I transferred the new barometer to the cooking department to be used for the official mess. It was found that even a pretty fair article of soup could be made from the defective barometer, so I allowed that one to be transferred to the subordinate mess. I next boiled the thermometer and got a most excellent result. The mercury went up to about 200 degrees Fahrenheit. In the opinion of other scientists of the expedition, this seemed to indicate that we had attained an extraordinary altitude of 200,000 feet above sea level. Science places the line of eternal snow at about 10,000 feet above sea level. There was no snow where we were, consequently it was proven that the eternal snow line ceases somewhere above 10,000 feet, and does not begin any more. This was an interesting fact, and one which had not been observed by any observer before. It was as valuable and interesting too, since it would open up the deserted summits of the highest Alps to populations and agriculture. It was a proud thing to be where we were, yet it caused us a pang to reflect that, but for that ram, we might just as well have been 200,000 feet higher. The success of my last experiment induced me to try an experiment with my photographic apparatus. I got it out and boiled one of my cameras, but that was a failure. It made the wood swell up and burst, and I could not see that the lenses were in any better shape than they were before. I now concluded to boil a guide. It might improve him. It could not impair his usefulness. But I was not allowed to proceed. Guides have no feeling for science, 
and this one would not consent to be made uncomfortable in its interest. In the midst of my scientific work, one of those needless accidents happened, which was always occurring among the ignorant and thoughtless. A porter shot at a chamois missed and crippled the Latinist. This was not a serious matter to me, for a Latinist duties are as well performed on crutches as otherwise. But the fact remained that if the Latinist had not happened to be in the way, a mule would have got that load. That would have been quite another matter, for when it comes down to a question of value, there's a palpable difference between a Latinist and a mule. I could not depend on having a Latinist in the right place every time. So, to make things safe, I order that in the future the chamois must not be hunted within limits of the camp with any other weapon than a forefinger. My nerves had hardly grown quiet after this affair when they got another shake-up, one which utterly unmanned me for the moment. A rumor swept suddenly through the camp that one of the barkeeps had fallen over a precipice. However, it turned out that it was only a chaplain. I had laid in an extra force of chaplains, purposely to be prepared for emergencies like this, but by some unaccountable oversight had come away rather short-handed in the matter of barkeeps. On the following morning, we moved on, well refreshed and in good spirits. I remember this day with peculiar pleasure because it saw our road restored to us. Yes, we found the road again, and in quite an extraordinary way. We had plodded along some two hours and a half when we came up against a solid mass of rock twenty feet high. I did not need to be instructed by a mule this time. I was already beginning to know more than any mule in the expedition. I at once put a blast of dynamite, and lifted that rock out of the way. But to my surprise and mortification, I found that there had been a chalet on top of it. I picked up such members of the family as fell in my vicinity, and subordinates of my corps collected the rest. None of these poor people were injured, happily, but they were very annoyed. I explained to the head chaleteer just how the thing happened, and that I was only searching for the road, and would certainly have given him timely notice if I had known he was up there. I said I had meant no harm, and hoped I had not lowered myself in his estimation by raising him a few rods in the air. I said many other judicious things, and finally, when I offered to rebuild his chalet and pay for the breakage, and throw in the cellar, he was mollified and satisfied. He previously hadn't had any cellar, and before he wouldn't have had as good a view as he did now. But what he lost in view, he had gained in cellar, by exact measurement. I put 116 men at work, and they rebuilt the chalet from its own debris in 15 minutes. It was a good deal more picturesque than it was before, too. The man said we were now on the Feilstutz, above the Schwegmat, information which I was glad to get, since it gave our position to a degree of particularity which we had not been accustomed to for a day or so. We also learned that we were standing at the foot of the Riffelberg proper, and that the initial chapter of our work was completed. We had a fine view from here of the energetic visp as it makes its first plunge into the world under a huge arc of solid ice worn through the foot wall of the great Gorner Glacier, and we could now also see the Fergenbach, which is the outlet of the Fergen Glacier. The mule road to the summit of the Riffelberg passed right in front of the chalet, the circumstance which we almost immediately noticed, because the procession of tourists was filing along it pretty much all the time. Pretty much, by the way, may not be elegant English, but it is high time it was. There is no elegant word or phrase which means just what it means. The chaleteer's business consisted in furnishing refreshments to tourists, my blast had interrupted this trade for a few minutes by breaking all the bottles on the place, but I gave the man a lot of whiskey to sell for alpine champagne and a lot of vinegar which would answer for Rhine wine. Consequently, trade was soon as brisk as it ever was. Leaving the expedition outside to rest, I quartered myself in the chalet with Harris, proposing to correct my journals and scientific observations before continuing the ascent. I had hardly begun my work when a tall, slender, vigorous American youth of about twenty-three, who was on his way down the mountain, entered and came toward me with that breezy self-complacency 
which is the adolescence idea of the well-bred ease of the man of the world. His hair was short and parted accurately in the middle, and he had the look of an American person who would be likely to begin his signature with an initial and spell his middle name out. He introduced himself, smiling a smirky smile borrowed from the courtiers of the stage, extended a fair-skinned talon, and while he gripped my hand in it, he bent his body forward three times at the hip, as the stage courtier does, and said in the airiest, most condescending and patronizing way, I quite remember his exact language, Very glad to make your acquaintance, I'm sure. Very glad indeed, I assure you. I've read all your little efforts, and greatly admired them, and when I heard you were here, I... I indicated a chair, and he sat down. This grandee was the grandson of an American of considerable note in his day, and not wholly forgotten yet. A man who came so near being a great man that he was quite generally accounted one while he lived. I slowly paced the floor, pondering scientific problems, and heard this conversation. Grandson. First visit to Europe? Harris. Mine? Yeah. Grandson, with a soft reminiscent sigh, suggestive of bygone joys that may be tasted in their freshness but once. Ah, I know what it is to you, a first visit. Ah, the romance of it. I wish I could feel it again. Harris. Yeah, I find it exceeds all my dreams. It is enchantment. Grandson, with a dainty gesture of the hand, signifying, Spare me your callow enthusiasms, good friend. Yes, I know, I know. You go to cathedrals and you exclaim, and you drag through league-long picture galleries and exclaim, and you stand here and there and yonder upon historic ground and continue to exclaim, and you are permeated with your first crude conceptions of art and are proud and happy. Ah, yes, proud and happy. That expresses it. Yes, yes, enjoy it. It is right. It is innocent revel. Harris. And you? Don't you do those things? Grandson. I? <laughs> that is very good. My dear sir, when you are as old a traveler as I am, you will not ask such a question as that. I visit the regulation gallery, moon around the regulation cathedral, do the worn round of the regulation sites. Yet, excuse me, Harris. Well, do you do it then? Grandson. Do I flit and flit, for I'm ever on the wing, but I avoid the herd. Today I am in Paris, tomorrow in Berlin, anon in Rome. But you would look for me in vain in the galleries of the Louvre or the common resorts of the gazers in those other capitals. If you would find me, you must look in the unvisited nooks and crannies where others never think of going. One day you will find me making myself at home in some obscure peasant's cabin. Another day you will find me in some forgotten castle, worshipping some little gem or art which the careless eye has overlooked, and which the unexperienced would despise. Again, you will find me as guest in the inner sanctuaries of palaces where the herd is content to get a hurried glimpse of the unused chambers by feeing a servant. Harris, you are a guest in such places? Grandson, and a welcoming one. Harris, that's surprising. How does it come? Grandson, my grandfather's name is a passport to all the courts in Europe. I have only to utter that name and every door is open to me. I flit from court to court at my own free will and pleasure. I am always as much as home in the palaces of Europe as I am among your relatives. I know every titled person in Europe, I think. I have my pockets full of invitations all the time. I am under promise to go to Italy, where I am to be the guest of a succession of the noblest houses in the land. In Berlin, my life is a continued round of gaiety in the imperial palace. It is the same wherever I go. Harris. Must be very pleasant, but it must make Boston seem a little slow when you're at home. Grandson. 
Yes, of course it does, but I don't go home much. There's no life there. Little to feed a man's higher nature. Boston's very narrow, you know. She doesn't know it, and you couldn't convince her of it. So I say nothing when I'm there. What's the use? Yes, Boston is very narrow, but she has such a good opinion of herself she can't see it. A man who has traveled as much as I have, and has seen as much of the world, sees it plain enough. But he can't cure it, you know. So best to just leave it and seek a sphere which is more in harmony with his tastes and cultures. I run across there once a year, perhaps, when I have nothing important on hand. But I am very soon back again. I spend my time in Europe. Harris. I see. You map out your plans and... Grandson. No, excuse me, I don't map out any plans. I simply follow the inclination of the day. I am limited by no ties, no requirements. I'm not bound in any way. I am too old a traveler to hamper myself with deliberate purposes. I am simply a traveler, an inveterate traveler, a man of the world, in a word. I can call myself by no other name. I do not say, I am going here, I am going there. I say nothing at all. I only act. For instance, last week, you may find me the guest of a grandee of Spain, or you may find me off for Venice, or flitting toward Dresden. I shall probably go to Egypt presently. Friends will say to friends, he is at the Nile Cataracts, and at that very moment they will be surprised to learn that I'm way off yonder in India somewhere. I am a constant surprise to people. They are always saying, yes, he was in Jerusalem when we heard of him last, but goodness knows where he is now. Presently, the grandson rose to leave, discovered he had an appointment with some emperor, perhaps. He did his graces over again, gripped me with one talon at arm's length, pressed his hat against his stomach with the other, bent his body in the middle three times, murmuring, Pleasure, I'm sure, pleasure, pleasure, great pleasure, sure, and I wish you great success. Then he removed his gracious presence. It's a great and solemn thing to have a grandfather. I have not purposed to misrepresent this boy in any way, for what little indignation he excited in me soon passed and left nothing behind but compassion. One cannot keep up a grudge against a vacuum. I have tried to repeat this lad's very words. If I have failed anywhere, I have at least not failed to reproduce the marrow and meaning of what he said. He and the innocent chatterbox whom I met on the Swiss lake are the most unique and interesting specimens of young America I came across during my foreign tramping. I have made honest portraits of them not caricatures. The grandson of twenty-three referred to himself five or six times as an old traveler, and as many as three times, with serene complacency, which was maddening, as a man of the world. There was something very delicious about his leaving Boston to her narrowness, unreproved and uninstructed. I formed the caravan in marching order presently, and after riding down the line to see it was properly roped together, gave the command to proceed. In a little while the road carried us to open grassy land. We are above the troublesome forest now, and had an uninterrupted view, straight before us, of our summit, the summit of the Riffelberg. We followed the mule road, a zigzag course now to the right, now to the left, but always up and always crowded and incommoded, by going and coming files of reckless tourists who were never in a single instance tied together. I was obliged to exert utmost care and caution, for in many places the road was not two yards wide, and often the lower side of it sloped away in slanting precipices eight or nine feet deep. I had to encourage the men constantly to keep them from giving way to their unmanly fears. We might have made the summit before night, but for a delay caused by the loss of an umbrella. I was allowing the umbrella to remain lost, but the men murmured, and with reason, for in this exposed region, we stood in peculiar need of protection against avalanches. So I went into camp and detached a strong party to go after the missing article. The difficulties of the next morning were severe, but our courage was high, for our goal was near. At noon we conquered the last impediment. 
we stood at last upon the summit, and without loss of a single man, except the mule that ate the glycerin. Our great achievement was achieved. The possibility of the impossible was demonstrated, and Harris and I walked proudly into the great dining room of the Riffelberg Hotel and stood our alpenstocks up in the corner. Yes, I had made the grand ascent, but it was a mistake to do it in evening dress. The plug hats were battered, the swallow tails were fluttering rags, mud added no grace, the general effect was unpleasant and even disreputable. There were about seventy-five tourists at the hotel, mainly ladies and little children, and they gave us an admiring welcome which paid us all for our privations and sufferings. The ascent had been made, and the names and dates now stand recorded on a stone monument there to prove it all to future tourists. I boiled the thermometer and took the altitude with a most curious result. The summit was not as high as the point on the mountainside where I had taken the first altitude. Suspecting that I had made an important discovery, I prepared to verify it. There happened to be a still higher summit called the Gorner Grot above the hotel, and notwithstanding the fact that it overlooks a glacier from a dizzying height and that the ascent is difficult and dangerous, I resolved to venture up there and boil the thermometer. So I sent a strong party with some borrowed hose in charge of two chiefs of service to dig a stairway in the soil all the way up. This I ascended, roped to the guides. This breezy height was the summit proper. So I accomplished even more than I originally purposed to do. This foolhardy exploit is recorded on another stone monument. I boiled my thermometer, and sure enough, this spot, which purported to be 2,000 feet higher than the locality of the hotel, turned out to be 9,000 feet lower. Thus, the fact was clearly demonstrated that above a certain point, the higher a point seems to be, the lower it actually is. Our ascent itself was a great achievement, but this contribution to science was an inconceivably greater matter. Cavillers object that water boils at a lower and lower temperature the higher and higher you go, and hence the apparent anomaly. I answer that I do not base my theory upon what the boiling water does, but upon what a boiled thermometer says. You can't go behind the thermometer. I had a magnificent view of Monte Rosa, and apparently all the rest of the Alpine world from that high place. All the circling horizon was piled high with a mighty tumult of snowy crests. One might have imagined he saw before him the tented camps of a beleaguered host of Brodignabians. I had the unusual luck to catch one little momentary glimpse of the Matterhorn, wholly unencumbered by clouds. I leveled my photographic apparatus at it without the loss of an instant, and should have gotten an elegant picture if my donkey had not interfered. It was my purpose to draw this photo all by myself for the book, but was obliged to put the mountain part of it into the hands of the professional artist because I found I could not do landscape well. But lonely, conspicuous, and superb rose that wonderful upright wedge, the Matterhorn, its precipitous sides were powdered over with snow, and the upper half hidden in thick clouds, which now and then dissolved in cobweb films and gave brief glimpses of the imposing tower as through a veil. A little later, the Matterhorn took to herself the semblance of a volcano. He was stripped to his apex. Around this circled vast wreaths of white cloud, which strung slowly out and streamed away slantwise toward the sun a twenty-mile stretch of rolling and tumbling vapor, looking just as if it were pouring out of a crater. Later again, one of the mountain sides was clean and cleared, another side, densely clothed from base to summit in thick smoke-like cloud, which feathered off and flew around the shaft's sharp edge like the smoke around the corners of a burning building. The Matterhorn is always experimenting, and always gets up fine effects, too. In the sunset, when all the lower world is palled in gloom, it points toward heaven out of the pervading blackness like a finger of fire. In the sunrise, well, they say it is very fine in the sunrise. Authorities agree that there is no such tremendous layout of snowy alpine magnitude, grandeur, and sublimity 
to be seen from any other accessible point as the tourist may see from the summit of the Riffelberg. Therefore, let the tourist rope himself up and go there, for I have shown that with nerve, caution, and judgment, the thing can be done. I wish to add one remark here, in parentheses, so to speak, suggested by the word snowy, which I have used. We have all seen hills and mountains and levels with snow on them, and so we all think we know all the aspects and effects produced by snow. But indeed, we do not until we have seen the Alps. Probably the mass and distance add something. At any rate, something is added. Among other noticeable things, there is a dazzling, intense whiteness about the distant alpine snow, where the sun is on it, which one recognizes as peculiar and not familiar to the eye. The snow which one is accustomed to has a tint to it. Painters usually give it a bluish cast, but there is no perceptible tint to the distant alpine snow when it is trying to look its widest. As to the unimaginable splendor of it when the sun is blazing down on it, well, it simply is unimaginable. <laughs>